0: From West in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Adam Naiman, author of the new book, David Fincher, Mind Games.
1: I don't know, I'd say Seven's a movie that doesn't necessarily prove Fincher had much to say, but it proves that he understood how to say it, and that's more than half the battle. The fact that he gets heard so often means he has a, a language and a voice and a sense of pitch, and he knows how to make people pay attention. I can't think of a working American filmmaker who, when he's good, obliges you to pay attention. He's he is amazing at taking an essentially distracted movie going cohort. And for now, two hours or two and a half hours being like, you are going to look at what I want you to look at.
0: We talked about David Fincher's wide ranging career influences and his influence as he directed films like Seven, Fight Club, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and The Social Network. Stay tuned for that conversation after this break. Riverside Chats is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong, bringing you the unique perspectives, personalities, and topics you love. Click the listener support link in the podcast notes for this episode to learn more. Hi, and you're listening to Car Free Midwest.
1: We're a podcast based in Omaha, Nebraska, exploring the stories, barriers, and joys of getting around the Midwest without a car. Our goal is to build a community around more transportation equity and less car dependency. I'm Sarah Johnson. And I'm Joshua LeBure. We'll be here every other week with interviews, topics, and documentary pieces covering all things transportation. And we'll be talking a lot about bikes, e-bikes, and cargo bikes, because once you get to know us, you'll find that that's what we're obsessed with. So subscribe to Car Free Midwest wherever you listen to podcasts. A production of Figure Podcasts. With
0: support from Mode Shift Omaha. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Adam Naiman about his new book, David Fincher Mind Games, which is available now wherever you get books. Naiman is a critic at The Ringer and Cinemascope, and he's also the author of The Cohen Brothers, This Book Really Ties the Room Together, and Paul Thomas Anderson Masterworks, which he and I discussed in an earlier episode of the show. His latest book, David Fincher Mind Games, is a critical and visual survey of the filmmaker behind incredibly popular works like Seven, Fight Club, The Social Network, and more. Here's my conversation with Adam Naiman. Adam Naiman, it's exciting to have you back on the show, this time about your book, David Fincher Mind Games. Uh you know, David Fincher has been a mainstay for my movie-watching career, and it's been kind of a weirdly varied career for him the past decade. But uh, I want to start – you you have a section early on in the book called Repeat Offender, which I always read in the voice of the parole board guy from Raising Arizona. But right. You say uh, serial killers provide the clearest through line for Fincher's filmography to date and that no American filmmaker of the era or probably ever has become so identified with serial killing as Fincher. And so I mean there's that dichotomy of obsession that Fincher seems to relate to, and sometimes it's text sometimes it's you know subtext but there's the methodical killer, the methodical detective and ultimately you seem to conclude that it's not necessarily crime or punishment so much as he sees a kindred spirit in his like his approach as a filmmaker relates to maybe both elements of that uh, dichotomy of serial killing is that is that fair yeah I mean I think he's interested in uh, I think he's interested
1: in multiple aspect of that basic scenario. I think he's interested in the act itself, right and the question of that act having meaning. It's an expression of something and an expression of something with a certain amount of stakes. I mean within the worlds of the film it's life or death stakes and I don't think he literally sees filmmaking as you know a predatory you know a body count uh, endeavor but it, it's a it's a one way to allegorize I think how seriously he takes that idea of craft. I think he's very interested in the idea of provability and knowability. So investigation isn't just about finding who's done something wrong. It's finding out exactly what's happened. And there's a certain satisfaction that comes from that. Uh, I think that he's interested more in dramatizing the lack of satisfaction. He's interested in dramatizing the lack that stands between us and total certainty, which I think is where his work takes on that kind of existential dimension usually without being pretentious about it it's like found existentialism where you know he's kind of just doing a procedural or doing a serial killer movie and then those little gaps and those little disparities get under your skin you know mm-hmm. and the the, the movie start taking on a different kind of dimension or a, a different level and i think that you know he's interested in messaging and i think that The question of solving something and reading something and finding legibility is interesting to him, especially when that legibility isn't necessarily what's there on the surface. I think one of the great Fincher set pieces and in terms of how it's put together, it's the bit in seven where everything that they're doing leads them to finding the chips in the guy's stomach which lead them to finding the scratches under the fridge, which lead them to moving the fridge and finding the thing written on the wall, the first clue. And Then that's mirrored in the second clue where they see the photo on the table with the eyes circled red and the eyes are looking at a painting and the painting is upside down. So you move the painting and then you have this weirdly complicitous request to sort of help me, you know? So. There's the act, there's the corpse, there's the crime scene, and then there's the hidden meaning, and then the hidden meaning is even a double meaning. Because in Seven, when he says, help me, it's not a cry for help from someone who wants to be stopped. It's more like, give me a hand with what I'm doing. And uh, some of that is the script, but Fincher's ability to find scripts that have those qualities, is that recidivist character we talked about, he is drawn to these over and over again, is where you get the sense of an artistic personality and I guess I'm not trying to compare him to a serial killer in a way that's glib or or annoying I, I think it's kind of funny that someone who's so controlling and so lucid and so wide awake as an artist is kind of helpless in thrall to these particular obsessions when you have someone who on the one hand is ironclad in how talented they are and then the other is kind of an open book <laughs> In terms of what really seems to obsess them and what really seems to trouble them, you can get some amazing friction and some amazing tension and and some really enduring, you know, popular movies.
0: Well, I know when, when we talked about a year ago about your Paul Thomas Anderson book, there was sort of a journey for you of you maybe were wrestling with Paul Thomas Anderson movies before you came to maybe like the later ones, accept them. There was kind of a journey like that. Was was your relationship with Fincher uh, bumpy in the same way it was with Paul Thomas Anderson? Well, they were kind of twin...
1: twin uh... Irritant to me, but it's also so obnoxious to say that because I'm talking about being 18 or 19. I'm talking about an idea of being a young cinephile, or even saying it that way is so obnoxious, but where you're discovering that there's a world beyond the American cinema and a world beyond the immediately available American cinema, and like a legacy of film criticism that's distrustful of the new and that's also distrustful of a kind of flashiness, right? so at the same time that a lot of my friends in let's say the summer of 99 and the winter of 99 were obsessing over fight club or Magnolia, i think very honestly and i think they came by those positive reactions to those movies very honestly i think i was almost more a bit facetiously uh, but i thought it was a very important thing you know trying to look beyond those movies or, or or being interested in the criticism that took them down a peck because they seemed so Omnipresent, um, And those two films, you know, Fight Club and Magnolia, in different ways, both related very much to Stanley Kubrick, who at 19, I wasn't interested in tearing down. He was one of the monuments who was always going to stand up for me because the films were older and I would started reading criticism that I found very persuasive in a, in a positive way. So in the same way that, you know, I was inclined to find Magnolia kind of overwrought and and florid which i still do i mean my 41 year old self hasn't totally broken faith with my teenage self right you know in the same way i found magnolia kind of overbearing you know i i I found fight club pretty obnoxious and i've come to now recognize that that's the correct response but that it's obnoxiousness almost uh (laughs) i'm nostalgic for it because we're in a moment of such anodyne mainstream studio filmmaking and kind of gutless mainstream studio filmmaking and i've also come to realize that the sort of incoherence of fight club or what seemed to me as a teenager to be incoherence is actually really kind of interesting dialectical argument the fact that the movie cancels itself out is actually pretty smart and you know i i assume you've read the book so mm-hmm. i i didn't like take this and make it a thesis but i tried to hint at it a bunch of times the extent to which fight club almost cancels itself out the extent to which in danger of canceling itself out and where it's subversive side and let's say it's kind of a front-running studio side or side by side that's fincher he's the subversive artist who wants to be a wrench in the machinery but he needs the machinery to function he's the guy who kind of paints himself as a little bit of an edgelord right but he also wants Oscar nominations. And it's not a totally static directorial persona. It's changed and come with time. But, you know, as he made more movies and as a movie like Fight Club goes from being, you know, the totality of the discourse on David Fincher to kind of just one of a few places you can go with him. Not only do I like the movie more, but I'm drawn back towards him as a director of some value. Whereas when I was young, I'm not gonna say young and stupid, but let's say I was young and pretty calculated or younger and pretty posturing. I wanted to dispense with these filmmakers. I'm like, there's so much of the past to discover. Why am I, you know, being just hit over the head with this this fake vanguard of the present? Well, 20 years later, they actually kind of now belong to the past. And it's a past that I'm nostalgic for because I'm sick of what is new now. And, uh, you know, both of those directors are better than I gave them credit for. The difference is I think Anderson made a huge, gigantic leap as an artist. Not a reinvention of himself, but he found a language that's truly amazing for me. Whereas I don't think Fincher's artistry and language have changed that much. I just think it's been over a deeper group of movies, and I've, I've developed more of an appreciation for it. Though so I guess if There Will Be Blood is the movie of Anderson's that turn me around on him. I think Zodiac in the same year would have been the one for, for Fincher.
0: That's interesting, especially given the kind of tension that they have in the sense that as you write about in the book, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson had a pretty uh, negative reaction to fight club. Uh, Yeah. And so I don't know. Do, do they have a relationship? Do you know anything about uh, the person? I mean, he wished, he, he wished colon
1: cancer on Fincher, and I don't know where. I don't know where you go from that. Right. I mean, like for example, Anderson and Tarantino are very public about being friendly, you know. And then Fincher and Soderbergh, I think, are public about being friendly. I don't know about you know about Anderson and Fincher. I mean, the the image I'd have for both of them, which I think in some ways is simplistic, and sometimes the streams do cross, but I think of Anderson as a guy with his heart on his sleeve and Fincher as a guy with a chip on his shoulder. Right. Yeah. And I think that in a way they've both made quote unquote more mature movies. Uh, and they kind of crossed the streams too, because Gone Girl and, and, and Phantom Thread seem to me to be hugely simpatico films in terms of when they're made in their filmmaker's career and kind of what they're examining. Mm-hmm. I mean, in very different genres and very different modes. I think they're examining monogamy and relationships and maturity and to some extent authorship and like, you know, what you put out in the world and how it's received. I mean, I, I think those movies are pretty, a pretty compelling pair, but I also have found in writing these books and even in the way these books have been received, not that we want to, like, I want to talk about reception reviews for what's still a brand new book in the case of Fincher, but so you know, they've both done pretty well. And, With Anderson, though, there was a deep passion that people seemed to express about not the book, but about the subject of the book. Like I would get emails from people in like, you know, Portugal and and, and parts of South America about how much they love Paul Thomas Anderson. With Fincher, it's kind of a more cool... Uh, you know, commercial kind of reception where it's like everyone loves these movies, but the passion, I think, comes out of the people who find them flawed or who are annoyed by them as opposed to people have deep love for them. I mean, it's hard to have like a deep, passionate, romantic love about like, you know, Mindhunter or, or a girl with the dragon tattoo because there's always a kind of cruelty and a chilliness to that
0: work that holds it at bay uh, a little bit. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Adam Naiman about his new book, David Fincher, Mind Games. If I could throw myself in there, actually, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is a movie that I, I mostly liked when it first came out, but there's something about it that keeps bringing me back to it. It's become kind of this regular watch for me. I probably watch it once a year, and I don't know. There's something that fascinates me about the rhythm of it that was kind of off-putting at first, but I just, I, I get something new. I feel like I notice something. It's like a different journey, and I don't really connect with the overall plot that much, but something about the atmosphere, and I, I really like the, the conversation you have about editing The interview you have at the end of the book, which talks about, I think, Soderbergh tried to shorten the movie a little bit and just killed the rhythm uh, of whatever Fincher was trying to do, which I can't articulate because it's like this weird mixture of um, almost emotional vulnerability, graphic violence, humor, and like you say in the book, kind of the greatest hits of elements from Fincher's career. But somehow that's becoming my favorite of his movies, and I, I, I don't know how to describe it. There's a there's
1: a critic I have a great amount of, of admiration for. He doesn't write that much anymore, but he was a big critic for a while in the 2000s. And he's a contemporary age-wise, which is Ignati Vishnevetsky. Ignati took over the Roger Ebert show for a while. He's written for the AV Club. He wrote a piece, I think it was for Mubi, on Dragon Tattoo that I quote, and I took pains to quote it because to not quote it would be dishonest. It was such a guide for me in terms of writing with that movie, and it's a piece about the editing rhythm of that film in terms of establishing shots and locations and repetition, like everywhere the Craig character goes, he's shown rough, you know, getting on the transport, traveling, arriving, being brought somewhere. He's always looking for cell phone service. There's habits that the movie almost seems to be documenting in terms of what his favorite snacks are, in terms of what her favorite snacks are, and repeated articles of clothing and positioning of chairs. And it's the stuff that can seem obsessive compulsive and that can seem to be a way of delaying talking about narrative and, and, and drama, except that the, the data and the. <laughs> The, the the data and the establishing shots, and in a way, just the, the movement of it is the drama, you know? I, I, there are people I know who really hate how prurient and violent Dragon Tattoo is, but like you, they're almost kind of just mesmerized by the being inside of it, just the kind of like cozy hum of yeah. how it's put together. And like Ignati, I, I try to write about that, and I try and write about how maybe more than any of his movies, you realize that there's this indistingu- indistinguishable line between speed and clarity in that movie, and that shouldn't work. Speed is supposed to either be exhilarating, where you're not thinking clearly, or speed is supposed to be confusing. You know, speed is supposed to be a kind of a, uh, an escape from thought, you know. Uh, And it's not like synaptic cutting either. It's not like the kind of speed you get in in a director like Nicholas Rogue, where the whole point is you're being thrown, you know, uh, mismatched angles and mismatched ideas at each other. And you're supposed to, you know, connect them in in a elliptical way. It's not that at all. It's all continuity editing. But it's so fast. And yet it's the speed that makes the details stand out. So on the one hand, I don't care that much about elizabeth about elizabeth salander and i certainly don't care that she goes and gets revenge on daniel craig's you know corporate nemesis and i don't care that he ends up killing himself i don't care about these things but the half second shot of her in her hotel room where she's got you know a white bra underneath a black leather vest and her blonde roots are showing her black roots are showing under her blonde wig because she's in between personas And in between roles, it sticks in my brain, not because it's sexy necessarily, but because it's such a brilliant expression of how she's navigating these two worlds and these two personas without belonging to them. It's a half second shot. And that whole montage is made up of half second shots. But the depth that they have and the suggestiveness of those shots, the clarity of those shots, the way that they define character in a gesture, it's phenomenal filmmaking. And it goes against every response I have to the totality of the movie, which is that at least in terms of the plot and the story and the book, it's just so stupid. <laughs> you know, I I have a colleague, Andrew Trace, he wrote about that movie, and I quote him in the book. He says, you know, this material is Agatha Christie plus anal rape. And he's not wrong because it's such a it's such a failed calculus on the page. It's like, we're going to do a rape revenge story. We're going to give you the most horrible stuff happened to someone. And then as long as she does it back to someone else, you know, the moral ledger is is even. And as a viewer, as a reader, you know, don't worry about getting off on it because it's on the side of political correctness. I mean, it's horrible. But the analogy that Andrew made also, where he says, you know, it's a silk purse out of a sow's ear. It's like still a silk purse, you know? Uh, I don't care if there's nothing inside the silk purse. I can just contemplate the the, the purse.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I was, I was, I appreciated the fact that the book tries to give language, and I think gives me a way to start to describe the magic of that movie. But, I mean, magic and trash, I feel like, are recurring themes in the book, right? You talk about trash several times, and uh, you've got a line – let's see, I wrote it down here. It's In comparing uh, Gone Girl to Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, you say, instead of trash gussied up a social commentary, right. Gone Girl is social satire, slumming is trash. And so <laughs> – I mean, the the relationship Fincher has with trash, I mean, on the one hand, I almost feel like he makes better movies when he lets the trash in as opposed to keeping it out. Uh, they're more entertaining to me. Certainly, they, they feel more personal in a lot of ways. But, I mean, what what is it? I mean, I don't know how exactly we're defining trash, I guess, but what is it that off that trash offers Fincher that makes him keep returning to it? Trash offers strength and extremity. I mean the
1: extremity of violence, the extremity of narrative situations, and a certain extre- a certain extremity of character. It also creates an interesting tension with the fact that he's fundamentally a realistic filmmaker. He has almost no sense of fantasy. You know, he can deal with looking at the world through a warped perspective, uh, but the fantasies are all interior. So it's paranoia in the game, and it's, you know, kind of multiple personality disorder in FICO. I mean, the only one of his movies that has a real magic realist aspect to it at all, I guess, is Benjamin Button. And Alien 3 is sci fi, though it's sci fi treated realistically, you know? So the kind of trash that he's interested in, which is a kind of pulpy, you know, I call it high end pulp, sometimes in the case of Seven, you know, kind of like liturgical pulp, you know, it. it it permits him to practice a kind of realism and permits him to provoke and have a kind of extreme, uh, a kind of extreme imagery. You know, it also means that it's now ne- his movies are never innocuous. They're never benign. You know, he's he's always interested in something popping up that's a kind of an extreme image or something that's unsettling. I mean, I argue in the book, and I would never say something as dumb as he didn't improve on this, because obviously his whole career is an extrapolation on it. But that smoking fetus PSA is almost what I would proffer if someone were to say, what is it about, you know, what? why is David Fincher good? And you look at that, and it's such a punky, tossed off gesture in so many directions it's like a nod to kubrick and a bit of a a bit of a goof on 2001 because it's the star child imagery but with this you know like underage smoking and it's social commentary but it's social commentary in such a double-edged way because it's not pearl clutching it's kind of more like yeah this is a big risk but it's also kind of cool and it's a self-portrait of himself because he is kind of, you know, like an enfant terrible of, of the music video commercial generation at that point. I, I look at an image like that and I sort of think, you know, it's, uh, it's a guy who knows kind of how to push buttons. And I think that certain structures that we associate with, with trashing you know, and genre movie structures like whodunits, serial killer stories, you know, police procedurals, they're the best staging ground for that. Part of him. And when he moves into other genres, which he does, like, you know, funny thing about the social network, not just now, but even when it was made, it's, it's kind of a period piece, you know, kind of a movie that has historical and social sweep. And same thing with Benjamin Button. That's part of Zodiac as well. He, he, he Mank is trying to do that. So, I mean, he has these other things that he sometimes moves into. But I think I agree with you that the closer the proximity to or the stronger the the detectable pulses of a kind of trashiness, his, his, his artistry kind of illuminates.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it, I was excited to read your Benjamin Button chapter, because as far as one that doesn't seem all that trashy, that's one that also just never really clicked for me as a viewer. And I, I think, once again, you sort of diagnose what I'm reacting to in the book. And it, it always seemed to me like that was more of an aesthetic experiment than like a story he was attached to. I think he he does seem to be more interested in the trash. And I don't know that he seems that interested when I watch that movie. And I kind of had the same reaction to Mank, though. It's interesting that the way you diagnosed uh, what's going on, or maybe what Drew feels Feature to both of those movies is that they're both sort of haunted by his father in different ways. Yeah. So that while I'm detecting something that feels impersonal in some ways, those are maybe more personal than the trashy ones that I am responding to. Well, that's my kind of, you know, it's funny. Wells had the Orson Wells talked about Rosebud in his own
1: movie as Dime Store Freud, right? And this is the kind of Dimestore Freudian reading of, of Mank, not just in terms of the movie that he made but the reception of the movie and kind of the failure of the movie is that it's kind of hard to rewrite your your dad not just to literally rewrite your dad's screenplay or have too much done to the screenplay but his dad jack fincher seemed to put a lot of himself into the characterization of Mank, and i think it throws it demagnetizes in a way fincher's kind of dramatic compass in that movie because i think he wants to preserve a really reverent reverently irreverent view of his hard-driving journalist father and he kind of ends up weirdly stranded with regards to the character of, of Mankowitz, who's one of the less less compelling protagonists he's had in a, in a movie I mean, Gone Girl is amazing in that he he manages the same trick as the book and I think does it better than the book does where you really do inhabit two subjectivities for a while and you are compelled to be in this world in the space that Affleck occupies and you're compelled to be in the world in the space that Rosamund Pike occupies and it doesn't give them equal perspective, but he's strangely adept at giving you the world from the point of view of like, you know, kind of persecuted, you know, husband and you know a, a, a you know a megalomaniacal but you know kind of in her own mind deeply morally justified a kind of you know uh you know wife who, who sick of being a cool girl i mean he's got a pretty elastic ability to to draw you into different kinds of protagonists and weirdly in where he feels so close in a way to this character or to model for this character being his own dad he 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 can't make his mind up. He can't commit. The movie feels like it's in traction, you know, the same way that the character does. And yet, over the course of writing the book and parsing all the mank reception and knowing I was going to have to deal with it kind of as a wraparound, you know, film, I've developed a slightly protective affection for parts of it because I think the the, the absolute torrent of kind of... Film cultural abuse and film cultural hatred directing at that movie was also a kind of larger referendum on Fincher, who had largely escaped that kind of skepticism to, to, to this point. And it really had to do with him treading on territory that's not his to tread on. As long as he's making supermarket paperback thrillers at 16 million bucks, it's fine. But when he starts making movies about Orson Welles and making comments about Orson Welles, the old guard keepers of the flame are not going to have it. And I, there was a lot of stuff that Fincher said and did around the release of Mang that I think left him open to that kind of criticism. I'm not saying poor guy. I mean, he's a big filmmaker. He can be picked on just fine, but I also really see how and why it happened. And I think it happened a bit disproportionately to the movie itself. The movie's not great, but it's not terrible. And on you know, rewatching and, and thinking a lot of, a lot of the stuff and it's kind of
0: fascinating. I'm talking with Adam Naiman about his new book, David Fincher, Mind Games, which is available wherever you get books. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break.
1: This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. Book clubs are fun for a lot of reasons. They're an excuse to read something new, something you might not have picked up on your own. They are a great opportunity to visit with friends. But what if you could invite the smartest, most insightful people you can think of to have a candid conversation about a great book? That's what I get to do on the Talk of Iowa Book Club, and you're invited. He really was able to convey the message in a way that gets to your heartstrings. We can really see that he is a scientist, but he's also a person who loves what he is studying. He's a scholar and a humanist, and and I think that's his greatest achievement.
0: And then it's like punch, punch, oh my gosh, what? So you have this like visceral, emotional connection
1: to the poem, and it's because of the way he's linguistically playing with language. Let's talk about sex, because, of course, in the original book, um... Stan sex- and I have always longed for someone
0: to say that to both of us on the radio. God.
1: <laughs> A dream come true. Yeah, All right. thank you. All right. The Talk of Iowa Book Club podcast coming soon from Iowa Public Radio. It's time to start reading.
0: And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a while now. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. I'm talking today with Adam Naaman about his new book, David Fincher, Mind Games. Fincher directed works like Fight Club, Gone Girl, and The Social Network. Here's the rest of my conversation with Adam Naiman. Another thing I was thinking about when I was reading the book, just maybe because I hadn't seen... I mean, I, I didn't know David Fincher's father really until Mank came out. I didn't know his name, anything like that. But I was thinking about this. Uh, you you refer to the narrator of Fight Club as Jack because of the recurring phrases that they use in the movie. I'm Jack's, you know, uh, raging bile duct. I'm Jack's, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I, I, to my knowledge, I read that book and I watched the movie, you know, a while ago. But I, I want to say that was an invention for the movie. Do you know... It does has anyone solved this is is the the jack the use of jack in that movie is there any way that that's related to his dad's name especially in the context of a movie about fatherless sons i mean it's a, i'd say it's a good guess
1: you know and it's it's a good it it it's a very good guess and it's not as if, you know, Jack Fincher was only ever on his mind later in his career. They had a close relationship and talked with the projects that he was going to make. I mean, in between Seven and Fight Club was the original time he was thinking of making Mank, right? So that refrain in the screenplay, you know, that's as good a <laughs> dimestore Freud read as as, as any. And, you know, Jack is just one of those names that has a certain a certain kind of harsh kind of uh, <laughs> kind of kind of sound to it but i think that you're right that one of the subtexts of fight club is fatherless sons which is carried over from from chuck Palahniuk, obviously and you know palaniak's one of those writers who i think is a really good match for fincher where his instincts served him well because the kind of crass callous sarcasm of that book and sarcasm and callousness as a way to access anxiety is is something that I think Fincher, you know, uh, relates to. I mean, it's the same way that the voice of Aaron Sorkin, which I find to be an almost unbearable screenwriting voice in a lot of other contexts, serves Fincher well. They're perfect for each other. And I think that, you know, as a tourist, I kind of want to say, you know, social network is good because of Fincher and Sorkin's the problem, but it's not the problem. It's one of his better scripts. But the qualities that his scripts have that hyper articulate sense of like accountability, like characters who know themselves. And I think that's, you know, that I, I quote a, a wonderful critic in my book, Mark Ash, when Dragon Tattoo came out, where he says, you know, people keep saying that David Fincher doesn't make movies out of good material. At what point is that, you know, not his fault? <laughs> and I think it's a good line, but also say, if anything, I think that what Fincher's got really a good instinct for. Is material that fits his sensibility and it's actually not that he works for bad material it's that he's not guilty about working with stuff that's trashy and more often than not he he transubstantiates it into something else so whether it's good or bad material i think he's pretty smart about fit benjamin button and Mank might be the only two where you really do find yourself asking like what, what were you thinking
0: Right. Yeah. It's interesting that of for one of the guys who came out of that 90s period, he didn't seem to ever have that allure to have the written and directed by credit, which no. so many people are so interested in and I think sometimes to the detriment of filmmakers who might be better with some collaborators. I mean, why do you think that is that he didn't want to also be a writer, even though he seems to have well, that voice? Well, I think he said
1: that it's just not his he says, you know, I can do every job on a set and that's what a director is, but I guess the writer is not on the set i mean the idea predates everyone getting together to realize it or, or to execute it but of course he writes i mean he, he 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 writes through production he writes through through the way things are cast he writes through the way that things are shot and and edited there's often a gap between printed scripts and how the movies end up it's just not a matter of taking credit for for pen to paper right um, you know i think it's funny though i mean a movie like alien 3 You can't even really say it's written. It's more like salvaged. I mean, you know, there's so many versions of that story and so many versions of that script. And it's changing conceptually and it's changing narratively. And they're like, you know, we need to have different ideas in our back pocket. If Weaver doesn't commit all before, you know, Fincher was hired. I mean, you know, that's not the nice the nice safe spot of a five minute music video treatment where you don't really need a script because you're putting across song lyrics. I think that that movie represented such a unique challenge for him because it's not about selling a song or it's not about selling a product. I mean, maybe in a deep way, it's about selling a product because it's brand extension, but it's storytelling without much of a story to tell and a story that no one had a grasp on. And I have an anecdote in the book where he's talking to one of the many writers who is reworking that script and he has dinner with him, And he says, you know, these people, you know, think I'm an ass. What do you think? And the, the writer's like, no, I mean, they're not communicating with you. <laughs> and that's why I think clarity of communication is so interesting to Pinter, And that's why he has people who will literally kill to make that point and kill to, to make themselves hurt. I mean, I've always thought that in one level seven is really juvenile because, you know, The serial killer speaking to to society by killing its, its, its flawed members. And even when you say it out loud, it sounds like something a teenager would write. But that idea that you try and stage manage things just so to make a point and that texture and framing and timing, you know, make a difference in how loudly an idea comes through. And the idea that in a desensitized media culture, you kind of have to swing for the fences like that because no one listens to anything makes Seven a pretty fascinating allegory. I don't know. I'd say Seven's a movie that doesn't necessarily prove Fincher had much to say, but it proves that he understood how to say it, and that's more than half the that's more than half the battle in the period that he's kind of trying to to work in. The fact that he gets heard so often means he has a a language and a voice. a sense of pitch and he knows how to make people pay attention i can't think of a working american filmmaker who when he's good obliges you to pay attention the way that 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 he does he's he's amazing at it he's he is amazing at taking an essentially distracted movie going cohort and for now two hours or two and a half hours being like you are going to look at what i want you to look at you know it's not a small achievement
0: well, yeah, especially in the streaming age, and it's it's that, I think that feature you're talking about combined with the juxtaposition between maybe his approach to like, he'll just jump into the whole Netflix thing, he'll work with streamers, he was going to do, I think he had like, what, three HBO shows at one point, he almost did, uh, in the, as opposed to like Tarantino, who seems to think that he's sort of above that. We're in a landscape where, I don't know, I don't know how much you feel like, The feature film is 100% distinct, like a feature film made for theaters versus one for streaming. It seems blurrier than ever about what exactly that means, if that distinction is meaningful for audience members as opposed to creators. And Fincher always is sort of, uh, I don't know if it's out of necessity, because I know he's got a hundred projects that just never got off the ground, but he's willing to do those sort of experiments to jump into, okay, where is it that people are watching things right now? Well, it's on streamers, right? And he's going to try to figure out how to make that work. I mean, he he seems to be uh, less precious, I guess, than a lot of the auteurs out there. Just the fact that things are changing in the in the media landscape in general well my my heart sank but also i smiled when he made that comment about you know what i do
1: is you know medium price challenging content i mean but on the other hand when you talk to you hear a you know a tarantino who's like you know every part of mine is art you know you also get tired of it i mean I think that when fincher describes himself as making content he's being sarcastic but he's also to some extent being truthful i mean the thing about a show like mindhunter which i want to come back so much and miss it and, and think it's terrific uh, i don't know if i would describe it as art i think i would describe it as an absolute kind of premium content that because it is made rigorously and with a sense of principle it comes close to giving me the contained dynamic feeling I like in movies. It's not a Twin Peaks, the return situation where categorizing that thing or taxonomizing it is genuinely difficult. And I think genuinely is worth wrestling with, not because movies are good and TV is bad or because there can't be liminal spaces in between, but because it really truly feels like cinema, even in a way that great television like The Sopranos does not. But, you know, I I think Fincher knows what he's doing when he's making Mindhunter. I think he knew what he was doing when he was making um, uh, House of Cards, which I chose not to write about in the book because I think it's such an uninteresting show. But I'm wrong to have not written more about it because of that impulse you so accurately described, which is Fincher's willingness to go where the eyeballs are. And then when, once he is where the eyeballs are, then he can do what he does to people's eyeballs, you know, which is just magnetize them towards whatever he wants them to see. I mean, I thought long and hard about House of Cards and watched the first two episodes that he directed and thought, these are really good. I mean, I know why the show took off, but then his stewardship of it totally disappeared. Right. Well, he made money off of it because his name's on it. People are like, oh, did you duck it because of Kevin Spacey? I'm like, absolutely not. I wrote about seven in the, in the book. There are a lot of problematic collaborators that all filmmakers work with. And some filmmakers are in and of themselves problematic, though Fincher's not. Um, I just think it's a bad show, but I think Mindhunter is a really good show, but also the authorship of it is just obsessively his. The directors who he hired, with all respect to them, their names are on the episodes and they they deserve credit for doing good direction, especially Andrew and 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 a couple others. But I mean, you know, it's the Fincher style book. I mean, maybe Carl Franklin gets outside of that a little bit, in the last couple of episodes of season two, and he's a really good director on his own terms. But I mean, Fincher is micromanaging every aspect of that show. He moved to Pittsburgh to do it, for God's sake. I mean, it's like very him. Right. So in that sense, I wouldn't make a distinction between film and television. And it's not so much because I want to try and say, you know, content is the equal of cinema. I just kind of want to say it's certainly tour work right and get and going back to that idea of serial killing and recidivism it continues this winning streak he's on not just because he makes good serial killer stuff but because he keeps deepening and complicating his and our relationship to that kind of material and to the historical truth of it i mean seven seven is great because it's completely prefab serial killer you can you can see, you know, M and Silence of the Lambs and Thomas Harris in it, but I mean it's completely fabricated and fantastical. I mean Zodiac and Mindhunter, we keep getting closer and closer in different increments to a kind of truth. And there's times when I guess that actually makes it scarier. Like I'm not a really ingenuous viewer and I'm not someone who's like, oh, something's better if it's based in truth. But a lot of the parts of Zodiac that are very unnerving and a lot of the parts of Mindhunter that are very unnerving is dealing with the reality of broken psychology or dealing with the, the, the reality of these people and how do you account for them then and now. And uh, you know that that's stuff that he obviously has a, an intelligent interest in.
0: If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Adam Naiman about his new book, David Fincher, Mind Games. Did you have a chance to talk to him at all? I know you got Bong Joon Ho writing the foreword, and he Fincher seems like sometimes he's good with interviews, and sometimes he's fairly elusive. You know what I found? I found that when I wrote the
1: Cohen book, which in some ways is both the it's both the book that I think represents like the best of of my the best of my intentions in writing this kind of a tourist criticism because they're my favorites, so. You know, I I think I really showed out for them. There's not a lot of ambivalence in that book, which is both true to how I feel about the filmmakers, but it can also make for boring criticism. You know, I hope it didn't. But I think that in the case of the Cohen book, I love their movies and them not being in the book is a blessing because they don't talk about their movies in a way that's going to be satisfying to someone like me who loves them because they're not going to answer questions. Right. They don't have to. They're smarter than me. They're smarter than you. They're smarter than everybody. I think it's really fascinating, by the way, that without Ethan, Joel Cohen is giving all these interviews about Macbeth that are extremely deep and revealing and sort of trying to explain himself, you know? I'm like, what are you doing? This is not the Cohen press tour behavior. You need Ethan back to basically say nothing, and then the movies are better. But, you know, my point being that the Cohens, being the guys who aren't there in their book really worked. I think for the Anderson book, there were attempts to get him on board. And he was just very busy with other things. And while we have talked since then about Licorice Pizza and about the book and a very nice time talking to him, and I think he's a brilliant filmmaker, Um, even though I wanted him in that book, the fact that he wasn't there ultimately was okay. And so when we set up for the Fincher book, we had these two books that worked with the filmmaker himself as a structuring absence seen through their collaborators, seen through the people who work with them. And we didn't try that hard to get Fincher. We tried a little bit. I would wager that he was closer to the Cohen side of the ledger temperamentally with critics where uh, I would be surprised if he cared too much that the book existed. There's nothing in it that's gonna make him unhappy. It's not personal biography. It's not libelous. I mean, it's, it's, it's criticism. And that's what I, it's kind of how I get away, not get away with, but it, it, it's what I'm practicing in these books. I mean, some people have sort of said, you know, why aren't you giving me more about their biography? I don't know about them as a person. It's like, it's not what I'm writing about. I'm writing about what's inside the, the film frame. Mm-hmm. And that's also where, I guess, of the three books, this one's the most, this isn't the right word, but like the most mm-hmm. negative, or the most ambivalent, because in some ways it reflects my mixed feelings about aspects of what the guy does. But I would also say you've read one interview with him, you've read them all. He will talk about tech while claiming, you know, tech's not that important to him. He'll talk about his perfectionism while claiming he's not a perfectionist. He gives the same reason for doing multiple takes, and I think it's a valid one which is he's not trying to break people down. He's trying to break through to moments that give him options in editing and considering how well put together his movies are and how incredibly precise those moments are. Like you look at something like the interrogation scene in Zodiac and you think whatever it took to get that, if it was 10,000 takes, I'm grateful for it because it has these moments of line reading and it's acting. It's not... a cutting to objects it's not plastic editing it's actors and i think that that's when people say that he's a misanthrope and when he's cold it doesn't jive because he's so curious about behavior and he's so good with behavior the way that people's behavior can be repetitive and then when there's breaks in those behavior it means something's happening even if they're not letting it go he is one of those guys and i didn't have the I didn't write the book this way. There's people who can write this way. And I tend to write very kind of thematically and and, and almost kind of sociologically or socioculturally how I situate these movies. But man, you could just write a whole book about like the way people eat in his movies. You write a whole book about the way that people occupy rooms and occupy chairs. And in a way, that's the non-glorious, non-dorm room poster side of a filmmaker like him and a filmmaker like Kubrick, who obsessed over that stuff. And then you'd have people say dumb in their reviews. If he doesn't like people, he likes things, or he uses people as props, or he uses people as as colors, as if they're proving some point about his misanthropy or his anti-humanity. He's like, no, he's interested in behavior. He's interested in, in, in these tiny little gradations of things. And when it's cut together, it's why a movie like Dragon Tattoo, to circle back to the one that we started with, is populated entirely by archetypes and by cliches. There's not a realistic person in that movie, but almost everybody's scenes are fascinating. Yeah. You know? And so that might be the thing that if I were to interview him, I would try and kind of press him on. But I also think much more than Anderson or the Coens, there's something kind of industry about him. And there's also his reference points, at least the ones that he's admitted to, like when he does links, you know, lists of the best movies he's ever seen or, or whatever else it's narrower. I think he comes by and honestly, I think he really does think that like all the President's Men and and Chinatown are, you know, the greatest movies. And there's nothing wrong with that. They're great movies and he equals them to some extent. But in terms of what I would interview him about, I, 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 I would have less in, in a way to ask him than I would have you know, if I could actually sit, you know, sit down with the Coens and do the the Chris Farley
0: show <laughs> stuff. You know,
1: yeah. hey, remember, remember when you guys, remember when you guys made a serious man?
0: That that was awesome. Uh, that's awesome yeah as as kind of a wrapping up question i I like the uh i like the fact that you've now written two books on very uh well-regarded filmmakers who make a lot out of a character holding a box with a head in it uh (laughs) cohen's with barton fink and seven now so is that that what we should look for for whoever you're going to focus on next are there any I'm i'm trying to think who else
1: has uh who 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 else would complete the Decapitation Trilogy? <laughs> what I will say is that if these three books have taught me anything, it's that uh, a deep core auteur study is not the thing I want to write next in this format. You know, I got reviewed by David Bordwell, which is such an insane sentence for someone like me because I'm a film studies student. I used to read Bordwell, and really, it's not that surprising. These are just people. But I mean, when Bordwell reviewed these books on his blog, I let the 20-year-old version of myself lost his mind. And he was very complimentary about the books, but he was talking about how the format is itself somewhat not paradoxical, but how the format is complicated because a tourist criticism isn't by definition positive. But a big fetish object kind of book is kind of by definition not negative. You know, you're not going to have screen grabs and art inspired by the movies that speaks to the flaws. Right. You know, it's like sort of beautifully packaged. And he said he fa- he found the tension in the books interesting. That as a critic, you know, trying to to write uh, objectively and and critically and even-handedly, and then the format of the book almost seems to be what you're what you're struggling against, or you just submit to it and you make something that's really you know affirmative, or you make something that's really adulatory. I don't think these books fail that test. I think they're test cases for it. But I've kind of now, I've not run out of filmmakers who I love enough to write a book about, but I don't know how many more filmmakers there are whose profiles are big enough and whose popularity is wide enough that a publisher like Abrams would want to make a book like this and my heart would be fully in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the one guy who is left, and it is a guy in that case who is left, who I think would support this format you know, really, really beautifully is Verhoeven, but I've written about him before. And I think the arguments about him have been made widely in the culture, kind of the same way that they have for Cronenberg and De Palma and some of the other great 70s guys who are still around. One of the things that's odd about Fincher and PTA both, they are not underexposed. And I'm very opportunistic for writing these books. And it was a smart call to do them because like they're popular. There's not that much writing on them. You, know, you mentioned Ethan Warren before we went on writing another book on Paul Thomas Anderson, which for the record, I can't wait to read and I'm glad it'll be there. But it's still not that many books on him. Uh, there's good academic writing. There's good standalone articles. You can find a million interviews with him, but him and Fincher both in an odd way were kind of undercovered in the book format. So if I do another one of these, and I'm hoping to, we're trying to, trying to put one together now, it's not going to be a single director study. Because I already feel self-conscious. People are like, oh, you wrote another one of these. I'm like, yeah, well, I just control-F'd it. I just took <laughs> all the Andersons out and Finchers in, and you can't tell. You're not going to read it anyway, right? You're just going to look at the pictures. So,
0: Well, I look forward to whatever you end up doing next. And for anybody listening who wants to check out your existing books and any, any of the writing you have, which is pretty frequent, uh, where should I direct them?
1: For, for more popular, populist, you know, weekly stuff, I, I'm lucky enough to freelance for, for The Ringer. Yeah. And uh, in terms of a home office, uh, I, I would suggest the Canadian film magazine CinemaScope, including currently, I have the interview I didn't do for the PTA, but, but did now with Paul about about licorice pizza, which was a good interview, uh, highlighted at the end, I won't spoil, by was easily the stupidest question I've ever asked a, a filmmaker of the first rank, and one that he was very eager to answer uh, due to its stupidity. It's always a great moment. You talk to an artist you really revere. And in his case, one, I'd spent two years thinking about writing this book. And I'm like, all right, man, look, I've got you here. This is the stupidest thing I can think to ask. But he's like, great. You just use up all the good ones. And then you go, this is all I've got left. And you go, okay. Well, I hope, I hope I've hope i had
0: a, a balance of good ones and dumb ones. Oh, I, it's an absolute
1: pleasure. I, I, I appreciate the interest and the support very much. I'll come talk about anything anytime.
0: I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. I had a great time. Riverside Chats is a production of KOS 915 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all these episodes wherever you get podcasts. Please subscribe and leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.